Well, thank you, Tyler and Randy. And take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we are continuing our new study on the life of David. And this morning, we are going to examine where God chooses David. If you remember last Sunday, we talked about King Saul and how King Saul was chosen by God. He had a a great opportunity. He was so blessed of God in in many ways, in the way he looked, in uh, his personality. But yet there was a fatal flaw in King Saul, and that is that he was rebellious in his heart. He refused to obey the Lord, and God has rejected him now from being king, and he, cho- he sends his eye, he begins to look toward choosing David. And we're going to look at that this morning. I did want to share, um, you know, in the darkest night of my life, you know, when we lost Cody uh, back in 2011, the greatest comfort that came to me and that I continue to need and continues to comfort me came from an unexpected source. It came from what we're going to talk about today, and that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And that is what we're going to examine this morning as God chooses David to be the king of Israel, we're going to take that opportunity as we examine God choosing David, a very, uh, I think, one of the most fundamental and one of the most important lessons that you and I can learn from Scripture is the sovereignty of God. Now, what exactly does that phrase mean? It's a very loaded phrase. You get into the argument between Calvinism and Arminianism and people start talking about the sovereignty of God. You know, I, I love to to uh, tell stories and, and jokes. Some of them are funny. Some of them aren't. Some of them are funny because they're not funny. You ever heard a joke like that? It's so far from being funny. It's, yes, it was. It was one right there. But there's a story about the guy that was a Calvinist and really believed that what will be, will be. And, and uh, he was always taking every opportunity to remind the congregation that it was ordained before the foundation of the world that this was going to happen or that was going to happen. This was ordained before the foundation of the world that I was going to stand by in this pulpit today. And you were going to be sitting in that seat today. And they were having homecoming and he uh, stood up to make a little speech and say the blessing before they ate. And, and he had one of the deacons in the church. They disagreed about that, that idea. And uh, so the deacon was standing beside him. He took, took, uh, the preacher picked up a chicken leg and he said, Well, brothers and sisters, it was ordained before the foundation of the world that I'd eat this chicken leg today. And right before he could stick it in his mouth, the deacon reached over and grabbed it and took a bite of it. He said, well, maybe not, preacher. Maybe not. See, that was so not funny that... So not funny but that, that, that it failed. But Well, I'm not talking about the idea that everything that possibly could happen is foreordained before the foundation of the world. I I do like to think the sovereignty of God is somewhat like if you get on a plane in Jacksonville and it's going to London, England. And it's one of those big double-aisle transatlantic ocean liners and and you get and you sit down in a seat. Well, you might decide they come by and you're going to have a Coke or a Diet Pepsi or you're going to get up and go to the bathroom in the back or, you know, on those long flights that last eight, nine, ten hours, people get up and walk around and they'll go sit by somebody else and talk to them. But if you're on that plane, you're going to land in London. 
and there's really not anything you can do about that. And I like to think that in some degree, God's sovereign purpose is somewhat like that. God has started this earth, and, and He tells us in the book of Revelation how things are going to end up, and that's how they're going to end up. Now, you have free will, and I have free will, and, and we can do different things, and we can move around on the airplane, if you will, and make different choices, but the, the world is going to end up the way God said it's going to end up. I love the definition of the sovereignty of God that Chip Ingram gives. Some of you may listen to him some on Christian, um, Christian media. But he, he gives five points regarding the sovereignty of God, and I think they're great. I want you to listen to them, because when we talk about the sovereignty of God, this is what we're talking about. And this gives me comfort. The idea that God is sovereign. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that God is above all things and before all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is immortal and He is present everywhere. Number two, God created all things and holds all things together, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Number three, the sovereignty of God. God knows all things past present and future. There is no limit to His knowledge, for God knows everything completely before it even happens. God is above all things. God created all things. God knows all things. And number four, the sovereignty of God, God can do all things and accomplish all things. Nothing is too difficult for Him, and He orchestrates and determines Everything that is going to happen in your life, in my life, in America, in the world. Whatever He wants to do in the universe, He does, for nothing is impossible with Him. And lastly, the sovereignty of God. God is in control of all things and rules over all things. He has power and authority over nature, earthly kings, history, angels, and even demons. Even Satan himself has to ask God's permission before he can act. I think that's a great description of what it means when we say the sovereignty of God. God is above all things. God created all things. God knows all things. God can do all things. And God, last and perhaps most importantly of all, God is in control of all things. One of the reasons I believe that the sovereignty of God gives me great comfort is, is to know that there is someone in control. To me, one of the most depressing thoughts and a thought that, that can lead to, to, to just ultimate despair for me is the idea that this world has no purpose. That it's all just a throw of the dice and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But there's really no purpose, no rhyme, no reason. It's just the way, as the old saying goes, it's just the way the chips fall. To me, that is the most depressing. The idea, if I feel like that is how the world is, then I just, with all my joking aside, I don't know that I want to be here. If that's all this place is. It's just random chance. And everybody tries hard and sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't and there's no purpose. But what gives me hope, what gives me assurance, 
what gives me the will to live and not only to live but to love and to laugh is the fact, and I believe it with all my heart, that God is sovereign. God is in control. There is a purpose. There is a plan, not just for the world, but for my life and for your life. And nothing can happen unless God allows it to happen. Now I know that opens up a lot of, a lot of big questions. Because with all the things that happen in our individual lives, in our community's lives, in the world in general, the, the obvious question, the elephant in the room is why? I mean, if God is in control and He is a good God, why on earth, why in heaven would He allow some of the things to happen that happen? You're expecting an answer, right? Read the book of Job. God never gives uh, an answer to Job. And I present to you that part of our walk of faith is wrestling with that very question all through this earth. For we walk by faith and not by sight. If I knew the answer to that question, I would not need faith. If I knew the answer to that question, faith would not be necessary. But faith is necessary because I believe that there is a good God who is not only good, but He is sovereign, meaning He controls everything. He is not impotent. He can do anything. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is all-powerful, but yet He is all-good. And in my mind, there is a somewhat of a contradiction. How can a God be all-powerful and all-good, but yet allow all the evil that we see? And from our viewpoint, He doesn't seem to be doing much about it. How is that possible? Well, it is possible, and the way it is possible, again, I believe that is part of our walk of faith. Trying to work out that problem in our heart and in our mind is part of how we walk through this life. It's part of the test, if you will, of this life. So, we want to talk this morning, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16, we want to talk about this wonderful, and I believe it is a wonderful truth, the sovereignty of God. What exactly is the sovereignty of God? And we're going to see that sovereignty played out in, the, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to begin there in verse number 1. You know the story. Saul has disobeyed the Lord. And the Lord has spoken to the prophet Samuel and said, Samuel, Saul has disobeyed me. I have rejected him from being king. I'm going to choose a new king. Now, now, now Samuel is weeping and mourning. Over Saul, if you look back up uh, in verse uh, number 1, the Bible says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? You ever had a mentor? Or someone, uh, let's put it another way. Have you ever been a mentor to somebody else? Somebody you took under your wing and, and you taught them a lot and, and you kind of uh, wanted to see them succeed and, and they don't succeed. They begin to go in the opposite direction. That's Samuel and Saul. Samuel had taken Saul under his wing. He had taught him and he had tried to hold his hand, if you will, and bring him along. And, and, and now God says, I'm through with Saul. He is not going to be king. I'm going to put another king in. And Samuel didn't like that. Samuel's God's prophet. Samuel mourned for Saul. He wanted God to keep Saul and he wanted to try to work on Saul some more and, and get him moving in the right direction. And the Lord says, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from 
reigning over Israel. Fill your, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Now we're going to talk about the choice that God makes. Number one, about God's choice. God's choices are sovereign. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. And God has a sovereign purpose for every choice that He makes. Notice what it says uh, there in verse number 1. He says, I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God so sent Samuel on a journey. God had a purpose, a sovereign purpose. He says, I want you to go, and I'm going to show you who's going to be the next king of Israel. Everything that Samuel did was because of God's purpose. Now, you might ask, does this world have a purpose? Have you ever heard, you know, where is this world headed? Well, some folks say to hell in a handbasket. Well, from all appearances, it looks that way, doesn't it? I mean, our world is certainly in a mess, but I want to give you a purpose that God has for the world. The world's not going to hell in a handbasket. The world is coming to Jesus. Did you know that? Because in, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The Bible says that God has a purpose for this world. This world is ultimately going to come to Jesus. Now, we know if you read the full context of Revelation, a lot's going to happen before then. This present earth is going to be burned, and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But the point I want to make to you, my dear friend, is God has a sovereign purpose. God has a purpose for this world. And this world is one day going to be ruled over and there is going to be a, a great king and his name is going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to be the king of this world. The world is coming to Jesus. That's God's purpose for the world. Why do we pray when we say, Our Father which art in heaven, thy kingdom come. That's what we're praying for. We're praying for the hastening. Lord, your purpose is for this world to be under the authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, we agree with that purpose. We pray for that purpose. We work for that pur purpose that this world will become under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, what about you? Well, it's one thing to talk about the world in general terms. What about you and I? Are we simply an accident of nature? A biological quirk that just happened? Or is there a sovereign and divine purpose for your life? I think you know my answer if you've been listening. Absolutely, there is a purpose for your life. Well, again, we ask the question, what about our pain? I mean, if I'm so precious to God, I'm so important to God, He loved me so much He sent Jesus to die for me, well, well, why? If He's sovereign, if He's all-powerful and nothing can happen without His permission, I mean, I wouldn't let anything happen to the precious ones that I love if I could help it. 
But sometimes I can't help it and you can't help it. But God can. If I believe everything I just said. He is all powerful. I just got out of my mouth. He can do anything. Nothing is too hard for Him. Why does He let His precious saints suffer and die with cancer? Why does He allow them to fall prey to murder and mayhem and accidents? Why does He let financial ruin sometimes occur to good godly people? Why? Well, the Bible has a little bit to say about that. Over in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul is speaking. You're all familiar, no doubt, with this passage. He's talking to believers, some of whom were going through incredible difficult times, and he's reminding them of God's sovereign purpose. And listen very closely. I know you know these, these words, and many of you are very familiar with this passage, but listen to the words of, of, of Paul. Using and, and listening with the idea of God's sovereignty. And I propose to you that the reason Paul can say the things that he says in Romans 8 is only because of the sovereignty of God. Because he believes that God has a purpose. God has a plan. And what we think we see is not always what we see. That there is another plan, another purpose beyond what we see. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who were called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is able to make that bold, emphatic statement to people who were suffering because he believed in God's sovereignty, that God has a purpose. And that God is able to take whatever situation you have, whether it's Corey Ten Boone in a concentration camp or your particular situation or my particular situation, and with His infinite power, take whatever it is that we are facing and make something good for His purpose. That gives me hope. That gives me hope, and I hope that it gives you hope as well. God has a sovereign purpose, but not only that, God has a sovereign plan to bring His purpose to pass. In verses 1 through 3, 
He didn't just simply tell Samuel, I've chosen a new king, watch it happen. He told Samuel, there's some things you need to do. I want you to go to Bethlehem. And I want you to go see Jesse. And I want you to invite him to the sacrifice. And I'm going to show you what to do then. But I've chosen someone in his household to be the next king. God has a plan for his purpose. You think about the coming of Jesus when Jesus... All through the Bible, all through the Bible, there's prophecies about the plan. God had a purpose. What was His purpose? To bring redemption to man. To pay for the sin of man. And God instituted a plan to bring His purpose to pass. And we read about that plan in Scripture. That there was going to be a virgin who was going to conceive. And she was going to bring forth a son whose name would be called Emmanuel. God with us. And this son was going to live and be brought into Jerusalem on a donkey of all things as a king. And, and he was going in Psalm 22, he was going to have his hands pierced and, and he was going to die. And he was going, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, so Jesus was going to be in the belly of the earth and he was going to be resurrected on the third day. And he was going to ascend into heaven and come back again. God had a plan. God has a sovereign purpose. And it wasn't just for Jesus, it's for you. And it's for me. If we're the called according to His purpose, we are in Christ, we are following Him, God has a purpose. You're here and you don't know Christ, God has a purpose for you. The Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of Jesus. God wants you first and foremost to come to Him and reject your sin and embrace Jesus Christ. That's His purpose, His plan of salvation for you. God has a purpose, and for every purpose of God, there is a plan. God has a plan and He's working it out in you. He's working it out in me. Listen to His voice. Samuel had to listen to God. He had to obey God. That was his part in the purpose and the plan of God. You say, well, I, don't, I don't know what the plan of God is. I don't know what the purpose of God is. Well, we know a lot of it. You know, as much as Samuel knew... You say, well, I don't hear the voice of God. Well, I've, you read your Bible lately. God's speaking as loud as He can out of the Scripture. That's the Word of God. There's so much in the Word of God it tells you to do. We should be following God's plan and God's purpose by listening to His Word. Well, if God has a purpose and He's got a plan for the purpose, He also has a provision to make His plan come about. There's God's purpose and then there's God's plan and God has a provision for his plan. Notice there in verse number 1, he says, Go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now there are a lot of sons in Israel. But God says, I want you to go to a specific town, Bethlehem. A lot of families in Bethlehem. Well, I want you to go to a specific family, the, the family of Jesse. And Jesse had several sons. But he says, I have provided myself a king among his sons. God always provides for his plan. You say, God's got a purpose. God's got a plan. He also has provision. He's got a provision for his plan. Think back to Abraham when he sent him up on the mountain to, to sacrifice Isaac. He said, well, wh wh where's, the, where's the offering? And God says, I will provide myself an offering. Well, they got up there and he told him to take Isaac and you know Abraham raises the knife and just before he plunges the knife into Isaac the Lord stops him and says don't do it and he looks around and what's caught in a thicket but a ram 
And they grabbed the ram and they sacrificed. God provided. That was His provision. Think about in the wilderness when the children of Israel were headed toward the promised land. God provided manna. He provided manna and quail. That was His provision. He had a plan to get them to the promised land. His purpose was to set up a kingdom in His name. And He had a provision to make that happen. Think about the prophet Elijah when he began to get discouraged and despondent. And God, the Bible says the journey's too great for you. And there was an angel and... You know, we say angel food cake. I don't know what they gave him, but there was a cake. And, and the angel gave the prophet something to eat. And, and he ate it. And it strengthened him. It gave him strength. And it gave him encouragement. God had a provision for His people. Jesus feeding the multitude with the loaves and fishes. Peter being freed from prison. And Paul being rescued from the shipwreck. God provides that His plan might follow through that His purpose, which cannot be defeated, if He is a sovereign God, His purpose will never be defeated. God has a plan and God has provision. But not only that, God has the power to make all of this possible. His sovereign power. God has all power. I read a story about Napoleon who had a soldier come to him one time and the soldier asked him some extravagant request. It, it was so extravagant it embarrassed the people who had brought the soldier in to see the emperor and, and they began to rap, reprimand the soldiers out. How dare you ask the emperor such an impudent question? That is, and, and, and Napoleon it said, said, hush, hush, hush. I will grant him his request. He has honored me with the magnitude of his request. He has honored me with the magnitude. In other words, he's asked such a great thing of me, evidently believing I had the power to do it. And Napoleon says, I'll give him what he wants because he's honored me with the magnitude of his request. I wonder if sometimes we don't come to God as if he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but just if he's, you know, some old uncle that's got a lot of money and we're just saying, Lord, could you, could you help me out over here a little bit? I, I won't get a loan of a couple of hundred dollars if I could pay the light bill. Yeah. And we forget that we're coming to the King of kings and Lord of lords. To a king you come. And we should bring our request. What does the Bible say? Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you might find grace to help in time of need. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. God is all-powerful. He has all power and all ability. He has the power to make anything happen. Jeremiah 32, 17, the prophet says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. I don't know what you're struggling with. We all come here today struggling with something that we're wrestling with. And, you know, some of us, it's got us down and it's got us pinned to the mat. And, and you know, they're on 8, 9, and they're about to hit 10. I, I don't know what you're wrestling with, but I just want to encourage you today. Nothing is too hard for God. Whatever it is you're wrestling with, keep asking God. Keep bringing that request to Him. Don't give up. Don't stop. But continue to seek Him. So, God's choices are sovereign. He has a sovereign purpose and he has a plan for his purpose. He's got provision for his plan. He's got power for that provision. But God's choices are often surprising. Notice there in verse number 6, the rejections that he made. It says, And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Sometimes God's choices are surprising in who is rejected. You know, I read, and I've used this example before, I read an article some years back about a study they did about interviews and applicants for job positions, and they decided to do a test, ask people if they participate in a test, and, and they took some very attractive people, both men and women, and they made the most attractive people have the, the, the worst resume, the least amount of qualifications. And then they took another group of applicants and, and uh, boy, I'd like to have been chosen for this group, less attractive people, okay, prone purpose, and they made those less attractive people have very high qualifications for the job. And they took these interviewers, saying, now we want you to interview these people, and, you know, they didn't tell them what they were doing. They said, you know, just, we just want you to pick one to hire. You know, and they brought in a more attractive person with uh, very few qualifications, minimal, minimal qualifications, but, but nothing like the less attractive person. Guess who got hired most of the time? And by the way, I'm sorry to say for the male species, do you know who was, of the interviewers, the men were the most susceptible. You know, for a man, if he's interviewing a female applicant and she was very attractive, the very high percentage of the time, she got the job. Now women, they still tended to give the, the more attractive person, especially if it was a man, the job, but at a much less rate than the men interviewers did. We do. We look on outward appearance. Somehow we look at a person and we say, well, if their face is shaped exactly right, if their proportions are exactly right, if, if they have an attractive outward appearance, somehow that's who we want to be around. It is just simply in us. It's hard to overcome it. And the Lord has a surprising Rejection. He tells Samuel, here's these good-looking young men that come before him and they remind him of Saul who was great-looking in every way and, and they look like a king, they walk like a king. He said, boy, he'd make a great king. And every time God says, no, not him, no, not him, no, not him. God's choices are surprising. But now notice the requirements that he has. He says in verse number 7, God does not look upon the outward, but God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. Well, again, we live in a culture, and I guess it's always been this way. It's not that our culture is different from the cultures before us. It's just the way this earthly culture is. That, that people put so... People, we don't judge right. That's why the Lord tells us to be careful in judging other people because you're not a good judge. Now, you might be a good lawyer. You might be a good witness. And matter of fact, that's a whole other sermon, but God never called us to be judges or lawyers. He called us to be witnesses. Be my witnesses all throughout the world. We're not good judges. 
And we're not even good lawyers, but you can be a good witness. But as human beings, we don't judge right. And there is a righteous judge, and he looks beyond the outward appearance, whether it be beautiful or not beautiful, and he looks at who you really are. Do you know what's going to happen to that beautiful body, that beautiful face, and, and all that that's on the outside? In just a few years, it's going to go back to the dust for which it came. But the real you is going to live on. And that's what God looks at. There's a real you inside you that other people can't see. They just see that outward appearance. But there's a real you in there. And God is the only person who, when He looks at you, He sees the real you. He sees the real you. Now, my friend, for some of us, that ought to be a sigh of relief. For others, it ought to send us into stark terror. That you're not that good person you're, you're claiming to be. That inside there's a black heart. But God sees the inside, whoever you are. That's who God sees. And God saw the heart of David and He wanted to choose him. Well, notice, of course, what happened in verse 13. There the Bible says the results were surprising. Or actually, verse 11, uh, when he found David. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Here, David, and it's amazing to me, he didn't even make the meeting. You know, Samuel said, I'm going to choose, I want you to bring all your sons. I've got a very important thing to do. And, and he brought all his sons. And David was so young, considered to be really, no, there's no way he's going to be the king. They just left him out tending to the sheep. And Samuel goes through and none of them are chosen. And Samuel says, well, I, I know I heard God. He said, the house of Jesse, I mean, don't, do you have any more sons? Oh, well, yeah, I almost forgot, yeah. You know, I got the one that's out there with the sheep. He's just the youngest. He's not really, you know, he's not really that important. Bring him. Samuel said, we won't move an inch until he comes. Think about, here comes little David, and he comes in fresh from the, fresh from the pasture. Probably still smelled like sheep. You know, he hadn't had time to, to get ready. And, and here he comes, and, and the Lord says, this is the one I want. This is the one I want. God often makes surprising choices. I mentioned we were going to start a study of David. Did you know that in the Old Testament, Abraham has about 14 chapters that are concerned with the life of Abraham? That's a lot, 14 chapters in the Old Testament. Did you know that, that Joseph has 14 chapters? In, in Genesis, you read 14 chapters have to do with the life of Joseph. Oh, Jacob, he has 11 chapters that have to do with his life. Elijah, the great prophet, he has ten chapters that tell about what he did and his life. You know how many chapters there are in the Old Testament that tell us about the life of David? And this, is a, this is an approximate. About 66 chapters. 66 chapters 
in the Old Testament that talk about the life of this little shepherd boy that they didn't even think was important enough to call to the meeting about who was going to be chosen king of Israel. He was just as an afterthought. They had to ask for him when all the others flunked out. They finally let him come in. But yet, in the Old Testament, he stands like a tower in terms of the amount of time that God chose to spend in the Old Testament telling us what David did. Now, that's not even counting the book of Psalms that he wrote. Many of much of it. We're just talking about the history of his life. What he did in his life. You go to the New Testament. By far, David is the most referenced character from the Old Testament in the New. Approximately there are 59 references in the New Testament that reference back to David. God had a purpose for this shepherd boy. He was tending his sheep, but God had a purpose and He had a plan. And He had a provision to make it happen. And He had the power to make it happen. Well, lastly in closing, I want you to look at David exactly what was he doing. Now, I present to you that we know that God doesn't choose us because we are Right, wise, or ready. As a matter of fact, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, uh, the Apostle Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in His presence. But what was David doing? Well, no, number one, I think we should take note that David was ready. Remember I said he was still in the pasture, tending to the sheep? All the other guys had been consecrated. If you go back and read, it says that Samuel consecrated. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but they had some type of ceremony, you know, where they were prepared for the, the gathering they were about to go into. All the sons of Jesse and Jesse himself had a special ceremony to get everybody ready for the ceremony. But, but not David. He's still tending to the sheep. He didn't have time to get dressed and put on good clothes. He didn't have time to think about what he was going to say, make a good impression. He's, he's just out there tending the sheep and somebody comes and says, Hey, David, they want you back at the house. And he... Heads back to the house and he thinks, well, what's all these folks doing here? And, and he gets there and he no doubt has to wash his face and wash his hands. I don't even know if he got to do that. And, and he walks in and the moment Samuel sees him, Samuel says, this is the one God has chosen. And I'm reminded what Paul told young Timothy over in chapter 4. Remember this is 2 Timothy 4, just before Paul was executed. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means to be ready when you're supposed to be ready and be ready when you're not supposed to be ready. Boy, we got something ought to really keep us on our toes now. It used to be the party line. Remember the party line back in a long time ago? The party line was a cheap way to have a landline telephone. And the way that worked was if you were lived in a rural area like we did, then you didn't have a private line. You all shared a line. You, all, you and about three or four of your neighbors all shared the same telephone line. 
And so your, when it rang your phone and all their phones, it made your, your ring was a little bit different. You know that was your ring to pick it up. And what that also meant was that when you called Aunt Sally on your phone and they were at their house and they decided they wanted to use the phone, they picked it up, they could hear you and Aunt Sally talking. And of course, you could normally tell when somebody picked it up, it made a little clicking noise. And there was etiquette involved. And that is when you picked up the phone and your neighbor's on the line with somebody and that's the first time you picked it up, you quietly let the receiver back down because you don't want to interrupt their conversation. Well, 10 minutes later, you go back because you need to call and check on somebody. You pick it up and they're, yeah, 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 yeah. They're still going. Well, it was okay then when you hung it up to hang it up a little bit harder that time so they knew somebody wanted to use the telephone. Well, you know, then there were the eavesdroppers. I mean, you don't know anybody nosy like that, right? You don't know anybody that's nosy. And those are the folks that would ease the phone up and they said, shh, they're talking to their ex-wife. Shh, listen. You know, and, and they would eavesdrop on the conversation. And so, but what we have now is cell phones. And boy, this should really put the fear of God in some of you. My preaching may not do it, but this ought to do it. And that's the butt dial. You ever did the butt dial? You know, that's when you call somebody and you don't know you called them. And you're just yapping away, yeah, 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 yeah. You look and say, when did I call this person? Then you realize, oh my goodness. I called this person, we was riding in the car. What were we talking about? What did we say? We weren't talking about them, were we? There was a point to all that. The point was that we need to be ready when we're supposed to be ready and when we're not supposed Most of us, we meet people in church. We had a little meet and greet a while ago. We're ready. We got a smile. We're shaking. Good to see you. I ain't seen you in a long time. Good to see you. We're ready. But when you butt dial them going up home, you said, you see what they had on today? You know, I think they give me a cold shoulder today. You hear that preacher, he went on and on. Lord, he'd do a lot better if he'd just shut up after about 25 minutes. <laughs> That's when you're not supposed to be ready. You see? And David was, he was not supposed to be ready. He, didn't, had, no, he had no time to prepare himself. And, and he was called to the home and he was ready. He was ready. Matthew 24, Jesus said, Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is coming when we do not expect Him. Death is coming to most of us when we do not expect it. Second, David was reliable. Remember that he'd been tested by a lion and by a bear, and we'll see that as we go forward into uh, chapter 16, chapter 17. He tells about the lion. You know the story if you've been to Sunday school, how the lion came and attacked the sheep, and, and the bear came and attacked the sheep, and, and David killed the lion, and he killed the bear. He spent many lonely nights out there in the pasture watching over the sheep all by himself, looking up at the stars. Bible scholars believe that many... Many times that's where his psalms came from, from, from out in the open at night, watching over the sheep. You know, Helen Keller, you remember uh, the, the, the great deaf mute, once said that character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. 
Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Name any endeavor you want to name. Athletics, academics, the business world, politics, even relationships with other people. Are any of them, is success attained in any of those endeavors through taking it easy? Just doing whatever you want to do. No, no exertion, no sweat, no effort. Of course not. You want a football team, a baseball team, a tennis team. You practice. When you don't want to practice, over and over again you practice. You want to get a degree. You go to school. And they give something called a test. Makes your blood pressure go up. Makes your heart beat faster. You get nervous. That's so cruel. Well, why do teachers do that? Why do they torture people with tests? But I wouldn't give you two cents for a degree that you never had to take a test for. Would you? It's worthless. You don't know if you know anything or not. And my friend, in the spiritual world, it is the same. We say, God, make me a better Christian. Lord, I want to be holy. Why do you let these bad things happen to me? I mean, I mean why, why do I have to exert myself? Why do I have to pray? Lord, why do I have to seek You? I, I get so tired of exerting myself spiritually. I just wish I just could come in and sit down on the, on the pew there and, and boy, You just hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and the Holy Spirit just make me holy and make me who I need to be. And, and then I could go out and my face would just be beaming. Let me tell you, face doesn't beam with the presence of God because you sit on the pew and listen to singing for 20 minutes or listen to a preacher for 35 minutes or 45 minutes. Your face is beaming when you've been through the fire and you've been through the trouble and you've been through the difficulty and God has proven that He is faithful and He is just. He is sovereign. He has a purpose. He has a plan. That is how your face beams with the presence of God. Not through calmness and not through just pleasure and... and Success that's poured up out of the sky. It is through, as David met the lion and David met the bear, you're going to meet your lion and you're going to meet your bear. And through faith in God and perseverance, you can defeat him. David was reliable. And lastly, last thing, David was resigned. You know, when he met the Lord or when he was anointed king, in chapter 16, verse 19, Saul is looking for somebody to play music for him. And there's a phrase that says... And David was with the sheep. After he's anointed by Samuel, he didn't all of a sudden say, hey, I'm quitting this job. Hey, I don't have to do sheep anymore. I'm the next king. You know, he didn't get him a new new name tag that said king-elect. King-elect. I'm not a shepherd anymore. I'm king-elect. You know what? He went right back to watching sheep. He waited upon the Lord. You know the secret, and there's 66 chapters about David, not because God wanted David to be a great king. There's 66 chapters about David because God had a bigger purpose. Over in Acts chapter 13, verse 23, talking about David, he says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who would do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Remember I said earlier that when we talk about the Old Testament, the New Testament... 
You won't really understand it unless you see all of it as pointing to Jesus. When you look at the life of David, the life of David is not just about a little shepherd boy that got to be the king and, and then ran into some problems and sinned and then got back right with God. Yes, that is it. But David is much more than that. David is pointing to Jesus. David is pointing to the Savior. David, in a way, is a type of Jesus. And we're going to see that as we go through the life of David. What was God's ultimate purpose? Not to put David on the throne, but to put Jesus in your heart. And to put Jesus in my heart. To bring Jesus to the earth through David and through the line of David. And even now, as our musicians come and get ready a hymn of invitation, even now, as whatever's happening in your life, I just want to tell you, I want to encourage you, God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for your pain, for your situation, for where you are. Don't lose faith in Him. Don't lose faith in the sovereignty of God, that God is over and above everything. Even our trouble, even our pain, our disappointments, He's above all. And I encourage you and I tell you, I believe, my dear friend, you will find the greatest comfort in trusting in the sovereignty of God. God knows things we don't know. He loves you. If you're here today, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I invite you to come. I'll be glad to pray with you. Or you just want to come pray at the altar. You just obey the Lord as we sing.